Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to this week's Think In, powered by the Canadian Real Estate Forums and the Ref Club. This is going to be a great conversation. We're going to be talking about the industrial marketplace in Canada with a little bit of focus on supply chains and logistics and the implications that has on our industrial real estate assets. Our guest today, one gentleman by the name of Nick Gagamieris, who is the Executive Managing Director of Supply Chain Advisory at Colliers International. Also today is Alistair Pickering, who is the Vice President of Industrial at Oxford Group. Gents, thanks for joining me. Oh, and I should always mention, of course, with me is, is Adam Poatic. As always, we get our, our fortunate opportunity to participate in these interviews, and you can always catch us on our podcast, the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. With that over, that's always the hardest part of these things. Let's get into the conversation. Alistair, Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Alistair, let's, let's thanks, just sir. start setting the table for just where the industrial market is in Canada today. I think anybody listening, watching, probably have heard that industrial is a very, very attractive asset class these days as a result of e-commerce and COVID has sort of accelerated sort of its trajectory. But maybe just take a couple minutes and just talk to where the Canadian industrial marketplace is as far as occupancy, supply, new development, you know, et cetera. So industrial was always something of the, you know, one of the, the sort of less desired sort of asset classes. It's not as as high profile as office and the sort of big retail malls, but it's always been a good steady performer right across all the markets. But really having its day in the sun now with those uh, sort of secular tailwinds that you mentioned, We've seen a, the general shift to e-commerce, and that's been accelerating because of the pandemic, and that's causing you know more demand. We're seeing stores require more inventory on hand to make their supply chains more robust. Certainly, there's been an uptick in demand, and the supply has not been able to keep up in the key markets. Toronto and Vancouver may be the two tightest markets in North America. I mean, globally, they're, they're really tight. Toronto is about 850 million square feet. It's less than 1% vacant at the moment. The Vancouver market is, you know, is pushing, you know, 200 million square feet. And similarly, it's sort of 1% vacant. And the supply that's in the pipeline would not meet normal absorption. So there's a huge pent up demand. And, you know, what we're finally seeing an escalation in rents that really haven't seen for, you know, as long as I certainly remember, you know, working it in this, we had a very sort of flatline industrial rents where they, for the GTA, for example, they very rarely sort of moved out of the sort of, you know, five to, you know, to $6 range for, for probably 10, 12 years. And suddenly there's a hockey stick uh, growth as, as competition for land has pushed those prices up. Construction's got more expensive and there is tenant demand and they can apparently afford to pay for it because one of the uh, sort of, Interesting things, and Nick can probably talk more to this, is that the actual real estate cost is a relatively small piece of the operation for most of these organizations. Transportation, labor are much higher. So there is some elasticity, and and we're now seeing that increase. And coming with that has been a huge wall of capital that's looking to invest in the space. And this is a global phenomenon. We're seeing um, a flow out of other asset classes as there is sort of a belief in the stability and longevity of industrial as a, a solid investment going forward. Totally correct, Alistair, that the fact that industrial rent is not a large line item in most companies' expenses 
bodes well for further rental growth. It's not going to cripple these businesses. Maybe we'll be able to pay that we can see continued growth. So I, I, I think it's a bright light for the sector. Nick, can you comment on the particular subsect of industrial that you specialize in? I, I got to think that right now is probably no better type of industrial to specialize in than anything to do with supply chain. You correct me if I'm wrong, but if you can give it the viewpoint from uh, where you sit, that would be appreciated. Yeah, no, it's definitely a great time to be an industrial landlord or own industrial real estate. You know, there's some of the comments that Alistair made about the rent being a small component of the total supply chain costs. That's true. And, and transportation is the bulk of it. So 50% is typically what we see is transportation related compared to 5% or lower real estate. But when we look at 3PLs, which are a big component of the occupier sector, labor, rent, steel, racking, uh, material handling equipment, those are their major cost components. And all of those have seen significant increases over the past five years from relatively stable. Rent was fairly stable. Steel was fairly stable as well. But the actual pricing of the industry in the U.S., they published the service price index and the general warehousing sector has been relatively flat the last 20 years. While yes, they are absorbing the cost of rent increases over the last five years, they're absorbing the increased labor costs, they're absorbing the new racking and steel costs and construction costs. I think we're at an inflection point now as the inventory has churned and we're coming to fewer and fewer lease renewals or available legacy leases at historically low rates that are now being renewed at significantly higher rates. And that is translating to increased pricing in the sector, which is creating significant challenges for all users across the spectrum. Because supply chain really is a cost-focused environment. It's how cheap and effective and efficient you move the packages through the network, whether it be on planes, on boats and trucks, or in warehouses. Cost is usually the number one metric that's being measured. And as we've moved now, you mentioned e-commerce and, and the distribution world. That's a significant growth area. Part of that growth is that consumers are demanding, but they've passed a lot of cost into the supply chain. So moving from going to a retail store to pick up their products or going to the grocery store to pick up their groceries, we've now translated that last mile into the supply chain and the picking costs into the supply chain cost. And so... What I talk about in some of the conversations is moving from one shipment of a thousand bars of soap to one retail store is now a thousand shipments of one bar of soap to a thousand homes. And you can imagine how much extra cost is in there. So the industry itself is challenged to solve these new problems. And that's what we as operators and, and the industry do really well is we solve these problems day in, day out. But the real estate piece, as Alistair said, there's now a premium for location, which drives the lowest transportation cost. We're going to, I mean, clearly with Nick on the panel, we're going to dive much deeper into sort of the supply chain and, and sort of the infrastructure around that. Um, I want to just remind the Ref Club members that are watching live to get your questions lined up into the chat because at the end of this, in about 45 minutes or so, we're going to have a, a sort of a live sort of unplugged Q&A with Alistair and Nick. You know, we're going to get into this deep dive on, on supply chains and, you know, some of the stuff that Nick had mentioned sort of before we went recording, things like the hyper-local and micro-fulfillment and the, the, the implications of clear heights. We're going to get into all of that. Before we go there, Alistair, maybe just, and Adam brought this up beforehand, Alistair, maybe mention you look at all different types of industrial. And, you know, one of the things that I always find interesting is, you know, 
apartment buildings, everybody can kind of wrap their heads around that. Retail, you know, there's a little bit of distinctions, you know, experiential malls, strip malls, but it's more or less the same concept. Industrial is an entire different beast as a real estate asset class. We're going to talk about supply chains, but what proportion of the industrial market are part of that supply chain process, the infrastructure for warehouses and, and the like? And what are the other ones that are maybe that people don't necessarily think about? Is cold storage part of supply chains? Are I guess there's manufacturing. What else do you look at in the industrial space that we won't necessarily cover today, but just again to set the context from a proportionate basis? Yeah, industrial is a pretty broad umbrella and, and it covers a lot of uses. I mean, they're relatively, by nature, relatively simple, straightforward structures that can house quite a variety of different operations. So what we do hear about most of the time are the, you know, the big Amazon warehouses, the new sort of logistics space. That's kind of where, the, where a lot of the focus tends to be. But the actual bulk is, is a lot smaller buildings. They're older buildings. They house a, a very wide variety of, of businesses, little sort of regional businesses, mom and pop businesses, you know, right down to the sort of, you know, 1,500 square foot, 2,000 square foot little local businesses. And as you say, you know, got all sorts of other things within that. You have refrigerated warehousing, you've got ambient warehousing, uh, there's that cold chain. So cold chains are really sort of interesting one. We invested in one of the, the world's largest operator lineage who run basically cold chain. And that's becoming an increasingly important and interesting sector that's doing very well as more of us get sort of, you know, our food and produce delivered to us. So that's got to be you know, obviously delivered in a, in a safe and controlled way. So we don't manage those warehouses ourselves, but we, we're heavily invested in lineage who are specialists in that area. I mean, the, the other area, and we have some exposure to this, uh, is manufacturing. And that's really restricted to the GTA for us. So we have uh, we have a 3 million foot campus, which has manufacturing. It's up in Vaughan. And there's extruded plastics. There are companies making sealed glazing units that you would see on condo towers. We also have a, we have a commercial laundry in Vancouver that provides laundry services for a hospital contract. There's a huge range, and the vast bulk of it is probably non-traditional sort of big box logistics. But we're seeing the logistics supply chain piece infiltrate all of that. At the end of the day, supply chain is simply just moving manufacturing goods and then moving them to the point of consumption. So there's now lots of different routes to that, and we're seeing a little bit of disintermediation of some of the traditional retail routes. So you've got a lot of sort of direct sort of business-to-consumer, business-to-business going on that may have gone through an intermediary. And a lot of that's running from the smaller industrial units. We typically don't have a lot of those. We focus on the larger stuff, but there are a lot of people who've done very well running that. And it's it's there's always demand, there's always stability. If you're in a good location, you're close to close to population, close to labor, close to the customers, there's always an occupier for that space. And it's amazing, even space which doesn't meet sort of the you know what we would see as sort of new modern day specs, there's still demand. There's there's still always a tenant for that space. Well, on the topic of there being tenant for every space, when you're bringing new product to market, Alistair, you are engaged in a lot of industrial spec builds what do you put in as your base design and what are you building to attract the broadest part of the industrial users? So flexibility is key and understanding your target market. So you can build to each of those sectors. When we've developed, we've typically been building larger product and it's been generally more distribution oriented. So we're trying to understand the needs of those tenants and have sufficient flexibility that we can accommodate the needs of 
you know, as, as they vary depending on the office office content. So we do need to have sort of a very clear view of how the buildings are going to get used. The reality is most of the tenants have some flexibility in their process and, and layout. But as, you know, as we're seeing rents get more expensive, and I'm sure sort of Nick would, uh, this is kind of more his world, the occupiers will get much more picky about those specifications, about the cube, about the efficiency, about the spacing of the columns, the number of doors, whether the yards can be secured, whether the yards are large enough to maneuver vehicles, whether there's additional storage outside, and actually sort of making sure that they maximize the attributes of those buildings. There's a lot of unused capacity in the industrial inventory that we have around where people have moved, you know, we've built buildings that are taller and tenants may not have used all of that space. I think that's going to change. Well, yeah, those are great points, Alistair, because historically in the warehousing space, a warehouse was a warehouse. The traditional specs of a building were fairly consistent for all users. But now as we've seen more focus on the supply chain strategy, there is the ability to customize and and fine tune the specifications and the configurations of a building to the desired use for the tenant for long-term uses. And that's what we're seeing. Amazon has developed their own specifications for their buildings and they get involved more in build-to-suit type solutions. But we see pick towers, e-commerce, automation in different sized footprints. And each one of these in the types of automation even has different parameters around what the best configuration is. So that is now taken into account for occupiers. And like you said, Alistair, with the rents now demanding a premium, people are being a little bit pickier and choosier about which buildings they destined for. That makes me think, like, how do you advise your development club developer clients to future-proof their buildings? Like you, you, you talked about built to suit, but you know, that user is assigning maybe a 10 or a 15-year lease. That building is going to be around for much longer. How do you prevent getting that building being not useful for more than three tenants in Canada and, and you're, you're really limiting yourself to the ability to attract a different tenant type? That's a good question. And whoever is answering that really well is, uh, is, is doing well. That being said, at the end of the day, the specifications of the warehouse, if you're clear height, clear use, decent base sizes, gives you the most flexibility. And that will position that asset in the, in the best available light uh, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, because the supply chain strategy will change in that time. And the cubic and the different requirements will change as well. So having the cleanest open space is probably your best bet. I mean, Alistair, maybe I'll ask you the same question. I know you've got a, um, a multi-story industrial building kind of in the works. Is there a tenant signed lined up? Or even if there is a tenant, what's the use? How are you going to you know, future-proof that building 20, 30 years down the road? We are sort of building a multi in, in Vancouver. And you know, we typically build everything on, on spec. The, the development cycles for industrial are a lot shorter than office. And also, the, you know, the investment is, is lower. So typically, whereas for a, you know, a bank tower, you'd want a, a lead 10 commitment, a significant sort of pre-lease. To get in the mix for industrial, you've had to had traditionally sort of get your product up and then you would get interest around the time the steel was going up if you were lucky. Uh, if not, you'd get it around the time that the building was substantially complete. You know, we do have to look through the existing tenant, the, sort of the initial tenant to, uh, you know, to, to future use because you're right, the, the, the buildings have longer utility. Building the multi-story, that was an interesting one because we're 
This is the first large-scale multi-story in Canada. There have been a couple in the US. They've been more more prevalent in, in Asia. I mean, if, if we wound back, I mean, historically, an old industrial was always multi-story. I managed six-story industrial mills north of Manchester, which were the norm at the time. But, uh, you know, then they kind of continued to be used for, for, for storage, and that was just elevator access. But we haven't seen it here because there's never been a, a need. And it's expensive to build. So we're building one at our Riverbend Park. And if anyone wants to Google sort of Riverbend Business Park, we've got a great website which has some graphics that might help explain how this works. But what's going through our mind on that is, you know, we're building a 700,000 square foot building, which is very large for that, for that particular node. We're going to be competing with single story products. So we've got to have the same level of utility. And effectively, what we're doing there is we're building a thing, if you imagine a single story industrial with doors on both sides and then stack on top of that another single story but loaded from the rear and then the extending over where the trucks maneuver is a deck effectively structured parking and then a big wide ramp at, uh, at one side. So for anyone driving up to that, it's really just the same. Actually, I mean, the, the grade on the ramp, there are, there are steeper public streets in Vancouver than that ramp. So Really, it should just have the same functionality because that's what we need to com- you know, compete with. The Asian multi-stories you know, can be, be different. They might be five, six stories. They tend to have these helical ramps at the end. They tend to be taking smaller trucks. And also, they're working off significantly higher land costs uh, uh, and rents. And so they're a little bit of a different, different animal. The economics of those you know, wouldn't work, certainly in, in Canada, you're seeing a little more of the small multi, maybe in in very sort of super coastal markets like like the Bronx, where you could you can get higher rents. But typically, the costs of building multi-story are are two or three x per square foot of building single story. So you need a pretty high land value and and high rent to make that work. And is there anything yeah. other than strictly strictly land value that determines that? Obviously, Vancouver would be a, the, an ideal market. Is constrained. There's not, you know, neighboring sites that are a half hour further down the road. You know, it just might not exist there. So when you're looking at Canadian geographies, and I'm sure you've looked beyond just Vancouver. If it is simply land costs, and I guess you know Toronto would probably be next in line. But what are the markets would you see this spreading to over the next, call it five years? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I think GTA it's starting to become an option, and we've certainly looked at it. We were just developing in South Etobicoke, and we just made a decision not to go multi-story on a, on a, on a site. It was, it was a little too marginal, but I think you'll see them starting to happen soon. I'm not sure any of the others are, are constrained enough that it, it's, it's going to make sense to, to do it in the, in the near future. There'd have to be a significant shift unless somebody really needed to be right on top of a sort of a downtown population. And there really aren't that many Canadian cities that have that density to, to drive it. So I think you'll see this as a GTA and Vancouver phenomenon for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it's, it's a, I see multi-story as adding additional inventory, less about the large bay and, and having one user occupying multiple stories of, of a single building, but having individual access and and direct unit access from the second and third floors is the value prop from a, a density perspective on the site. Inside the four walls, there's a lot happening in automation and in, in the technology for material handling that allows companies to utilize beyond the traditional 40-foot 
cubic height. And so we're seeing crane-based systems that are up to 90 and 110 feet clear rack-supported buildings. You're seeing multi-level pick towers and and the development of those for e-commerce operations and, and for retail fulfillment. So there's a lot of creativity and a lot of technology going into the clear height utilization. But the multi-story, multi-unit conversation is creating more of the industrial asset in the urban cores. And that urban densification is a trend that I think it was going to continue. We've seen it kind of slow down now over the the past year with COVID where there's been more of a, a flight to the suburbs. But the GTA, you still have a very strong Toronto presence. You still have a very strong Mississauga, North York, uh, Scarborough population density. So the ability to create more industrial inventory in those locations is attractive. This is a flyer, Nick, and I'm sorry for doing this, but like, why wouldn't somebody then build a 30-story industrial building tower in the heart of, you know, Bay and Girard, where they've got, you know, 600,000 people within five square kilometers of that site and fully automate it? And then that's, that is the, I mean, as you, you kind of called it, like the hyper-local or micro-fulfillment, you could probably get sort of 20-minute delivery because you've got this warehouse that is literally next to half the condo towers in the city. Well, we're seeing a lot of interest in micro-fulfillment, and I'll talk about that in a second, but the the challenge of putting in a big multi-story as an occupier, there's no premium that I'm willing to pay to be on the 30th floor. Or like the office tower, when you're in the penthouse, there's a, there's a premium demanded and a premium justified for those offices, but a warehouse is a warehouse. So whether you're on the first floor, the third floor, or whichever, the price point as an occupier is is similar. And you're so going to pay more same. for land. Yeah. So yeah. That's and, it's com- it com- and competition because exactly. the other use would be office or res and you can probably be- get a better return for the same development. Let's stop there because let's, let's back up because we want to go into e-commerce now. And But again, let's start high level and then we'll get into the nitty gritty about it. First, let's just talk about e-commerce percentage of retail in Canada and, and maybe maybe Nick, just compare it from a global perspective, like where do we sit right now? So in the past year, we've, we've effectively doubled our penetration of e-commerce in terms of total retail from about 6.5% to just shy of 11%. Compared to the U.S., they've now passed 20% in the last quarter of 2020. But even still, compared to China and the U.K., those two countries are actually past 30% of, of total retail is happening online. So... From a Canadian perspective, we still have a long way to go from what I see as finding an equilibrium of online versus offline world. Well, on that, on that topic, I know I've heard the ratio before, and you probably would know it, Nick. For every square foot of lost retail, does it not equate to a certain amount of uh, industrial? So they're, they're re-equalizing uh, would keep employment going, keep uh, industrial investment strong, just not necessarily in retail. Do you know that ratio, Nick? I don't know that ratio, but... What I've heard and what I track is that e-commerce fulfillment takes two to three times the industrial footprint of traditional retail fulfillment. So every dollar that you pass into the e-commerce world from the retail space is taking up multiple square feet of industrial footprint. So then pick a number. And I know you don't know, you won't know this on the top of your head, but we're at 850 million in Toronto. I can't remember, Alice, you said 200 million in Vancouver of, of yeah. industrial footage where would we need to be if we're up if we start moving to 20 25 percent e-commerce 
Like, are we a quarter of what we would actually need to satisfy that? Maybe half? It depends on how much more efficiency we can squeeze out of existing buildings, for, for one. And then I think the, the other aspect is how the established retailers use their existing retail network and whether they start sort of leveraging that in order to, to do some other fulfillment. Because, I mean, we're now getting to a point where industrial rents are getting pretty close to, and, and maybe in, 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 certainly in some parts of the, the US, they're exceeding some of the sort of, you know, C and D class retail. So what was effectively an expensive way of doing it in the past may, may be viable today. And, you know, some of the retailers, I mean, if you look at you know, the big supermarkets, the Walmarts, Loblots, the world. I mean, they've got incredible sort of market penetration in terms of their physical presence. They've got a, a huge starting advantage over someone like Amazon. And they've got all of their inventory at the sort of points of, of they're just really trying to figure out how they how they move that into a sort of a, a fulfillment model or an omni, omni-channel model. So to some extent, it's going to depend on how much that gets levered. And then also how, how these models evolve, because the, there are different challenges with, with e-commerce. It, it's you know, we talked a little earlier about, you know, just the, the small order picking, which is an issue, but there's also the return logistics challenge as well, which is which is actually a bigger problem for, for most of them. It's it's fine if you just, you know, if you buy something from a store, you change your mind, you want to take it back, it's fine. They just hang it back on the rack. If you do that through sort of e-commerce, they've got they've got to figure out how to get it back. And so much of the stuff just actually gets ends up getting getting destroyed. And we've all had stories of ordering things online, you know having an issue, phoning up, and, the, and the, the vendor saying, well, just keep it or donate it. Um, if it doesn't work for you, it's just not worth taking the, the product back. So at the moment, there's, there's tremendous inefficiencies in that, and that, takes up, that will take up a lot of space. So there's certainly going to be a level of, of demand. It's going to increase. Uh, it may be at the expense of some retail space. And it depend on how efficiently people manage these, these processes. Uh, and, and ultimately, then, you know, against a backdrop of just how GDP goes, because this is all related to consumption of, of goods. So if GDP is moving on at a steady rate, we're consuming more, then there's going to need more manufacturing space, more warehouse space, more distribution space and capacity. So let's give the, uh, the retailers something to, to smile about. You, you mentioned a couple of headwinds for for e-commerce, but in a Canadian context, is the distribution of our population going to pose difficulties in trying to move to 30% adoption of e-commerce, 40%, you know, where does that seedling lie? And is the Canadian experience detrimental to trying to hit those large-scale absorption in the uh, retail environment? I don't think it actually is, because if you step back and think about the Canadian consumer, are we fundamentally different than our U.S. peers or the U.K. or even China? You know, people shop online for convenience, for price comparison, for product selection and availability. So a lot of those drivers are universal, which is going to pose a challenge for Canadian retailers because we do have to answer that geography question. Elster hit on the great point that a lot of the retail networks have very attractive and, and productive assets in terms of their retail. And we're seeing a lot of interest in the micro-fulfillment or local fulfillment of e-commerce orders. So the buy online, ship from store solution, where companies are avoiding the distribution center for the eaches and the e-commerce shipments. And here in Canada, the vast majority are Toronto-centric. And so the opportunity is, if you have demand in Calgary or Vancouver, to fulfill that 
from those regional areas and from the store inventories. And that drives significant transportation savings in terms of the, uh, that last mile delivery. Yeah, I think Canada's, um, although, you know, obviously a huge, uh, huge country and, and these centers are quite dispersed. We're also a highly urbanized, I think 75% of, of, of people live in sort of, you know, early sort of established cities. It's, it's not too distributed, but uh, I think we'll end up with sort of a two-tier model where, you know, if, you, if you're close, if you're close in, you're going to get a level of service. If you're, if you're living somewhere more remote, then you probably, as people do now, they accept that they're going to have to wait a little longer for things. And I well, think remote consumers are also acclimatized to pay for the cost of, of service. So the shipping cost, and, and we hear a lot of free shipping is driving the e-commerce adoption. Um, while it may be free to the consumer, the cost is loaded in there somewhere. And rural consumers understand that there's a cost to serve them, whether it be utilities or any other nature. Um, so there's a cost, and, and we'll probably see more companies continue to support them, but with that additional cost passed along. You know, Nick, on the on the flip side of that, you, you talked about just the hyper local or um, uh, would you what did you call it micro fulfillment, um, and I guess that means we're going towards you know not even just same day delivery, but hourly. Is it half an hour? Like, what's the target one for you know that kind of delivery service? And two, what's the biggest challenge for your clients that are trying to provide that service as part of the supply chain? Well, stepping back, historically, Toronto was always the center of the Canadian supply chain universe. And so just like in IT, you never got, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM in the supply chain world. No one ever got fired for setting up a warehouse in the GTA West. That was the go-to solution. But there's a lot of flexibility now and, and that hyper-local fulfillment because of the understanding that transportation is such a big component of the supply chain that and the other part is the technology. We're now seeing automation platforms that are cost competitive in very small footprints. So you no longer need multiple hundreds, thousands of square feet to run an automation solution. We're seeing plat- automation platforms, goods to person robotics that are installed in sub 1,000 square foot footprints. So that combination of the local demand, the high transportation cost, the high service level, and the technology creating the perfect storm for that micro-fulfillment solution. Here in Toronto, we're going to see the pilots and the tests, but given that the, the main facilities, the, the e-commerce operations are locally based, I think there's going to be a lot of focus in the secondary markets, the, the Calgary, Vancouver, Montreal, that we will start seeing inventory being placed into shared services, into 3PL environments, or, or to piloting other micro-fulfillment technologies out of retail or, or shared hubs. So if all four of us ordered a bar of soap right now, and what, at what point is it going to take half an hour to get to our door? Like, is that the objective? Or where do you see that there's a barrier? At some point, it can't get there in two minutes, right? Like, what do you think that looks like? It's going to go down to, I think, the, if people are willing to pay for it, you'll be at service within a couple hours. And that solution, we've seen that with the Amazons of the world, uh, where Amazon has doubled their footprint in the GTA over the past year. And from what I'm hearing, they still have plans to double again. And they occupy 1% of the total industrial market here. Um, They're expanding into the other markets as well. So by them moving their facilities closer and closer and increasing the scale, 
It increases the probability of their planning capabilities to have the right inventory at the right place as close to you as possible. So if we all ordered the same bar of soap, it come from different fulfillment centers based on where we're each located. You mentioned robotics just a, a minute ago, and I could spend all day talking about you know, driverless shipping is not something we covered today, and I, I don't know if we have time for it or not, and, and robotic warehouses. But to be frank, most of the product out there on the industrial front was built a long time ago. That's a huge segment of the market. So when you're working with, with clients, Nick, how, what barriers do you have when you're trying to match their needs up against what an older building can provide? Where, where are the bottlenecks? And what kind of solutions do you look for to get somebody into an older building that might be very well located uh, for their purposes? Well, actually, right now is an interesting time because companies that know their order profiles and understand their inventory profiles are able to match the right technology solution and then understand what these building specifications and characteristics are for their optimal solution. And I've talked about automation and we, you know, we picture the crane base 70, 90, 110 foot clear building, but there's also very efficient, dense storage solutions that operate in 22 feet clear. And everything above that is, is open air. So they can operate in second, third generation buildings um, and older buildings that are um, not ideal in terms of column placements or walls or, or sections in the building. So there's a lot of flexibility once the company knows their order profile and knows how to adapt the real estate to their actual strategy of what they're trying to accomplish with that building. Alistair, I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is on this. You know, as you're in your acquisition strategies, um, do you have some general rules about, you know, nothing over 1970s, nothing under 18 foot clear, or, or do you feel that there is a tenant profile that will use or benefit from any of those uh, scenarios? Typically, if we're looking to acquire, we either want sort of high quality or an exit to quality. And the, I mean, the challenge is the, you know, for the sort of returns we're looking for, stuff that is developed, fully stabilized, leased with a around it. You know, it's not necessarily, the, you know, as attractive to us as an opportunity that's got a little hair on it that we can, where we can add some value. So, you know, to that extent, it's, we're, we're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of these older infill uh, opportunities is really a covered land play. You may be able to get some income for a while while you go through entitlement, and uh, and then you know either retrofit or, or actually because the economics have shifted so much and land values have come up, rents have come up. It's now sort of economic to actually tear these buildings down and redevelop. That's what we're doing in South Etobicoke. Uh, that's actually what we did in Vancouver. It was an old uh, that was that site was an old derelict pulp mill that we uh, we tore down and we built a state of the art uh, business business park on it. Uh, we did something similar in Edmonton with an old old industrial building that, that was now economically obsolete. And in, uh, in Toronto, we've got a, a, a series of sites that uh, we've acquired that we're looking to, looking to do that on. And we, often we're, you know, we, we sort of start off with the intention of how can we sort of work with sort of adaptive reuse, but then potentially it just becomes you know, more efficient to actually you know, rebuild on the site. And what about topping up, Alistair? What's your opinion about you know buying something that's low clear height and and raising the roof, so to speak? I mean, we, live theoretically and literally. Yeah, we've only ever done it with um, with sort of manu- to house manufacturing processes where we've done a very local localized um, roof uh, lift in order to accommodate process equipment. Did 
normally the challenge with with doing sort of roof lifting and it, and it's worked and there's you know there are companies that do it uh most assets are compromised in multiple ways and it's not just the clear height so you solve for one issue but then you find that you don't have sufficient sort of turning radius in the yards the door ratios aren't good the column spacings aren't good or even potentially the slab may not be strong enough to take the loads from the racking that for your, for your new height so it, it, it can be challenging it's certainly got applications it's not something we've you know we've generally done and where we've explored it we've typically ended up solving for, for sort of a teardown but that doesn't mean that's going to be the right answer in all cases the tenant profile on the on the older builds which has the tighter shipping and can operate with misplaced posts and just just yeah. as is is that tenant pool still pretty deep or are modern businesses reflective of modern needs I think there's always demand for that. There, are, you know, there's a lot of, you know, particularly as you get to the smaller end, there's a lot of small private businesses that, uh, you know, that need to run that provide all sorts of, all sorts of services. You know, maintenance. You know, the guy who comes out and fixes your HVAC or anything you want. But all sorts of sort of little business to business operations that operate in in those those buildings. And there's there's demand, and they want to be close to where they live, close to where their customers are. So so there's. There's good steady demand for those at the, at the smaller end, and kind of what interests us is when we can sort of aggregate a bit and then get something with a bit more scale that makes it more efficient for us to uh, to put the time and, and effort into you know into sort of re- redeveloping the challenges. It takes it takes almost as much work to do a small site as a big site, so you know we prefer to have something which has a little bit of uh, scale to it. I guess Nick, on from a logistics or supply chain perspective, those sites that are older, lower clear height, there's probably still some active or usefulness or utility to them uh, for your clients. Exactly, and, and there's still opportunities, whether it uh, whether it be for local delivery, um, for sortation operations, and also just three PL perspective. So third party logistics companies are actively growing, taking on more space and, and, and bringing on new clients. So as they scale, going into smaller footprints and then scaling up from there uh, allows them to be cost competitive at all, at all size points as well. So there's a demand for, for locations of all size and configuration. The market's so tight at the moment that people will hold their nose and put up with, with space. And we've seen that, you know, it, it, it's not a phenomenon in, in every Canadian market, but we've certainly seen it in terms of, you know, Vancouver and the GTA principally, where, where you, if you don't have a choice, well, you just have to, you have to make it work. Well, on the topic of the virtually every industrial market being very tight right now, you always hear that a vacancy rate below a certain level makes the market non-functional from a user perspective, you know, how difficult it is to expand, how difficult it is you know, within, a, within an existing site, how difficult it is to open new locations. So when you're dealing with uh, with tenants, how much are you finding that the low vacancy rates actually pose a problem for business growth? I think it's a real challenge. I mean, historically, historically, Canadian markets always operated a little more conservatively than the U.S. So we would say if we were in sort of a five to seven percent sort of vacancy range, that was that was okay. I mean, that would be a hot market for a lot of U.S. markets. There would be all sorts of building going on, but you wouldn't typically get a lot of new supply put on if you were exceeding that. Uh, here, you know, we, we're now we've now dropped to the level where I, I think it's very difficult. People don't want to commit. Maybe they want to, you know, an operator wants to take on a new contract, but in order to do that, they need a slightly larger building. If they don't think they can get that building, 
you know, they might just forego the uh, forego taking the contract, and maybe that goes to you know, a, a U.S. operator or you know, a Mexican operator, uh, and we lose lose that business. We need we need to have sufficient supply that people can can have a reasonable chance to to right size in into you know into product and it, it just becomes gridlocked at, at the moment and i think that's it's it's not healthy for the canadian economy we need better supply and the problem ultimately for most of the canadian markets isn't lack of land it's it's bureaucracy and servicing and it's the you know it's the role of the municipalities the regions to ensure that they sort of bring sufficient supply on because they they control the the feed of of servicing and there's certainly land there that could be developed, but we have incredibly painful and slow processes uh, that, that are inhibiting that. So I, I think there's, there certainly needs to be a fundamental sort of rethink about the way we approach that. We're, uh, we're almost out of time, guys. Um, we're going to jump into the Q&A. So a reminder to our Ref Club uh, participants to get your questions ready. And uh, once we finish the interview portion, we'll, we'll jump in sort of an unplugged uh, question and answer period with Alistair and Nick. You know, Nick, I, I think I'm probably just going to pose the same question that Alistair just answered. And just from your perspective, what that low vacancy, quickly appreciating uh, rent market uh, looks like and how it's impacting your business, your clients' businesses for that matter. Yeah. It's a big challenge for most of the uh, the three PLs and uh, and any occupiers in that distribution space because going back to why why focus on Toronto and, and why on the Canadian market? Well, you know, with five million people, this is where pe- uh, companies are looking to expand and looking to grow their operations. So it's not a matter of can they locate in uh, a secondary or other market to support Toronto. Um, that that major geography and the major density of population pulls the transportation cost and the requirements there. The rent and the availability is a significant challenge. And and I've heard stories of 3PLs that have decided to shut down operations in the situation where they've been facing lease renewals uh, with significant increases that they've just decided to forego um, the operations that they have and uh, and consolidate back into smaller facilities or into their other locations and uh, and give notice to their customers, uh, which is a challenge. So it creates churn in the industry uh, from the occupier perspective and the clients, but also from a lack of stability uh, once product is moving around and processes are moving. So it is it is a challenge. It's it's a struggle. Companies are adapting uh, and finding ways to address this, but uh, ultimately, there's there's my original comment was there's only so much margin that can absorb, that can be absorbing uh, these cost increases. I guess it's the the Goldilocks dilemma. Vacancy can't be too high, it can't be too low. It's got to be just right, and that's a, a tough tightrope to walk. And obviously, we're uh, we're pretty off base with it now. Uh, that is the end of our interview portion. We are going to go next to. The Q&A with Alistair and Nick. Uh, it is available for Ref Club members. If you're not a Ref Club member, I encourage you to join. There's a whole lot of benefits, but one of them is that you could be joining us right now for a Q&A and a whole bunch of other benefits. So uh, do check it. Uh, Alistair, Nick, I want to thank you for your time today. This has been very informative. Industrial is one of my favorite asset classes, and there's a lot going on in there right now. So thanks for sharing your perspective. Welcome to the CRE Podcast After Show, where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the conversation that 
just took place. If nothing, Aaron, this was out of the ordinary that we had uh, two guests on, but I thought it worked pretty well. A good diversity of opinions, of course, with the landlord and a broker both sharing their different viewpoints. I wish we had more time with them because that was that was really, really interesting. There's uh, a lot going on in the industrial world. I really enjoyed that conversation. Just the concept of supply chains, just how impactful that evolution, continued evolution is on the world of real estate, right? I always say this now, it's just such an interesting concept, but we're in the business of housing enterprise. And so supply chains are a major, major component of that. So those in the industrial space clearly track that very closely. And Nick being an expert, it was really interesting to hear just kind of the way that he sees the supply chains evolving. One of the things that he said that I, I still don't believe him, but but he he's adamant that Canada will get to that sort of 30% of e-commerce threshold, which is kind of where a lot some major European countries are. I think, I can't remember where we are, what he said where we are, but I think he said we're at like 10 to 15%. So we've got a doubling of our e-commerce to go, meaning that that supply chain, the impact of that supply chain on on industrial and other, other types of assets is just going to be astronomical. And yet we haven't even started to really see it, right? Like it, it, that's what I think is so mind-boggling to me. And then that, that trickles down to, we like highlighting terminologies that we've never heard before, but you know, he said things like micro-fulfillment and hyper-local. So we think about the supply chains and you know, industrial assets as being these big 200, 300,000 square feet warehouses, big boxes. But he's talking about a totally different type of industrial when you're talking about, you know, one hour deliveries or what have you. Yeah, you have to be truly decentralized in order to make that happen. And that is one of the challenges of our country. I mean, you're talking about 30% penetration in Europe. I mean, Europeans are jammed shoulder to shoulder in most countries, makes it a little easier. The logistics aspect of trying to service 30% e-commerce in a country like Canada. I mean, you know, once you get out outside of the cities, which is the low hanging fruit, the mind boggles. And then, then, yeah, yeah, you'd be talking about some very small warehousing space to try and feed smaller communities. It's quite a challenge. Canada always has its challenges with everything just due to size and spread out population. But this one in particular, if the, the world's going to be existing in a state that e-commerce is you know, a major part of the way we receive goods, Canada's going to have to really re-engineer the way we distribute goods across it. Yeah, that kind of, you know, we talk about just sort of the the micro level and we talked about the retail conversion or just how retail can be used for for that sort of hyper-local distribution. But then there's the flip side, right, that Alistair was talking about where he's building these two-story industrial complexes that just the logistics of planning something like that and then putting it into operation and the number of trucks coming in and out and just, you know, the flow of goods like that really is like a macro perspective on just the, how supply chains get filtered through to that delivery at your front door. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, defining the right tenant. And then, of course, this, the engineering behind it, obviously making sure you get the correct rent for it. We've talked around this subject quite a bit. But of the many things I liked about this conversation, the fact that we actually got to talk to somebody who is doing it was a real uh, leap forward for us because we've definitely spent time speculating on it and talking around it. It's incredible to hear. And then, of course, there is the uh, the insane concept of going beyond two-story industrial. You know, where, where it could end, what kind of light-use tenants could you have on top of a seven-story industrial building? Well, I, and I don't know if you heard it, but I mean, I made the comment about, you know, 30-story industrial and downtown locations. And I think Alistair was a little bit like, nah, we won't see that. But Nick didn't seem necessarily that thrown off by it. Like, I think he'd clearly had thought about it before, had discussions about it before. Because I, it does, if you want to have 
one hour delivery or less. You've got drone delivery going from rooftop to rooftop of condo apartments, having a 20 or 30 story industrial fulfillment center, supply chain center, whatever can be really useful. But I mean, I I know there's a lot of (laughs) underwriting that would have to make perfect sense in order for that to, to work out. But yeah, okay, well, if office rents are 35 bucks, it makes sense. If industrial rents for that location are 35 bucks, what's the difference, right? So I don't know. Anyway, I, you, you heard it here first. I guarantee in our lifetime, we see something like that. You laugh at me now. Adam's got a big grin on his face like I'm an idiot talking about this. But I, I, it's got to happen. It just has to be based on the way that our world's evolving. When I'm 91, I'll call you at your old folks home and say, look, they finally did it. You know, if, <laughs> I think in our lifetime might be the key part there. It'd be very, very tail end before we uh, do see that. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that Conceptually, it could work in this, you know, from an engineering standpoint, I'm sure they make it work. It's just uh, if the economic drivers could make that happen. But speaking of cool industrial buildings, we got into a little bit of, of cold storage. And one of the most interesting property tours I ever did was a significant cold storage facility here in the outskirts of Toronto, obviously not downtown. And the building, this is a while ago, so I, I'm going to mess up the stats a little bit, but it was probably an equivalent of seven stories high without any any floors, robots moving around, shuffling things from slot to slot. We had to wear oversized jackets because it was extraordinarily cold inside. But the whole place was just run like something out of the future. It was really incredible to see. It's a little different, obviously, from an underwriting standpoint for uh, lending that poses own challenges. But for just a one-off experience in real estate, getting to tour that thing was, was uh, very impressive. Well, it's like underwriting a data center, which we've talked about before. It's just the, the, the numbers don't necessarily make sense for lending. And we've had guests every once in a while, we pose that question of you, if I give you a bucket of money, what would you invest in? And we have had guests say self or cold storage facilities with the home delivery of groceries and, and, and the growth of e-commerce. It probably makes sense that cold storage is an asset, sub-industrial asset class that is probably on the uprise. And then just finally, before we, before we wrap up, the only other thing that I thought was kind of neat that I had not heard before is the concept of dark storage, where you don't even need to turn the lights on. It's all so automated. You got, you're probably one security guard and one person looking at a dashboard of bells and whistles. And then the rest of the thing is just computers or, or, or machines running around pulling parcels off of, off of racks and putting them into the back of trucks. And like, clearly that's, that's the next stage, right? That's where this is all going. Yeah, I will say from when uh, you know I started my career doing industrial real estate uh, in the West End of Toronto, none of this was around. Like, industrial was much simpler then. And that was not that long ago. I started in 2010 doing that. And it was just kind of light use, heavy use, industrial, and that's about it. And you know, rent was $4 and it hadn't moved in 15 years. And uh, now all of a sudden it's $8. And you have all these, yeah, as you said, the kind of subclass uh, within the industrial realm, really interesting use of industrial space to adapt to the way humans are evolving, the way we, we lead our lives. So we'll be interested to see how industrial plays a part, the rapid shift caused by COVID and just the general evolution of uh, you know, the human experience. Yeah, if you're early in your career and you're thinking you like commercial real estate and you're wondering what asset class to become a specialist in, the answer is industrial, Like <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Don't do what Adam and I did and become experts in nothing and generalists in everything because that's not useful. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked you didn't say apartments, but uh, that's okay. I'll, I'll let that one slide. <laughs> anyway, I think that's enough for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Appreciate uh, taking the time to listen and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. 
The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.